good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 8. And we're going to read all the way down to verse 15. And I promise you I'll preach on more than verse 8. Maybe you're not excited about that. Um, You can go ahead and stand, though, when you get uh, to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 8. We're going to read down to verse 15. I remind you, brothers and sisters, that these words were given by inspiration of God, that they're the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving faith, knowledge, and obedience. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture before us this morning. Lord, we thank you that the supernatural work of our encouragement is in the normal day-to-day living of the Christian life together. We thank you that you have given us one another to be encouraged by and to encourage. Lord, we thank you that the gospel is not something that we move on from. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak through your word, that you would use my weakness to display your power. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, I'm excited to get to preach to you on a text that I think I would have assented to in my mind from my conversion, but I think more specifically have experienced as being a part of the body of Mercy Hill. I really feel as if in the last several years being a part of this body that Romans chapter 1, verses 8, and we're going to finish in verse 12 this morning. Don't get too excited. That this text has been shown to me in a real way. And what I mean is that this encouragement that Paul speaks of in, really specifically in verse 12, but as he leads into it, the entire text that we read this morning, 
that that kind of encouragement I realize is only possible through the gospel of God, but I, th- I think is especially evident in our body together this morning. And so this morning, my desire for us is that we would, uh, that we would be encouraged in the gospel, but also that we would dwell on the God of the gospel and see the glorious plan that he has for the encouragement of the saints. And so the sermon in the sentence this morning is that Paul's prayer reveals the power of the gospel to encourage the saints. Paul's prayer reveals the power of the gospel to encourage the saints. And if you look at our text this morning, in a lot of ways, verses 8 to 15 are, are the way that we see the theology that Paul gave in verses 1 to 7 spill out of Paul in his prayer. Paul gives this personal message to the church at Rome, and, it, and all of the things that he mentions in these verses are actually uh, effects of the theology that he has introduced to us in the first seven verses, which I think is an important distinction that we make this morning because as we look at these verses, there's no specific doctrine introduced. There's no specific uh, part of theology that is discussed Paul is giving a personal message, and yet we don't separate theology and practice because we realize that our theology affects our practice. That Paul knows and desires the truths of verses 1 to 7 that we've been studying for the past several months, and we get to see the way that it spills out of him. So in our text this morning, I think the way that we could see it is that Paul peels back this curtain of his flesh to let us see his heart, to see uh, what is inside and witness the love that he has for Christ, the love that he's experienced in Christ, and the way that that is displayed in his prayers for the church at Rome. And so if you're taking notes, there will be four points this morning. And the first is that Paul's thanksgivings, Paul's thanksgivings reveal his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 8, Uh, is, is where we find that. Paul's thanksgivings reveal his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He says, first, I thank my God. Here's the first thing that I want to say to you after I've introduced the glorious doctrines of this book. The first thing I want to say to you is that I thank my God. Paul's going to pick up back in verse 16, delineating these great, glorious truths of the gospel, these doctrines that we hold so dear, and yet he takes this moment, this personal moment, to speak directly to the church at Rome about his desires for them. He desires to speak to them in this really, honestly, a pastoral way. And he refers to God as my God. And this is glorious in and of itself because we know where Paul has come from and, and how Paul had lived uh, a life contrary to the gospel and that he had radically been saved by the gospel of Christ. And he says, this is my God that I thank. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. But I, I think what's most interesting here in verse eight is who Paul thanks and who Paul does not thank. It doesn't read, first, I thank you, church at Rome, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He doesn't say, I I thank your elders because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
This is a direct application of the theology that Paul has been talking about in verses 1 to 7. Who promised the gospel beforehand? Through whom have we received grace to bring about the obedience of faith? Who called us to belong to Christ? Who loved us first? Of course, the answer is God. And he says, I thank my God for all of you. He thanks God rather than thanking the church at Rome because he knows and is teaching that their faith that is proclaimed in all the world is only present because of the work of the gospel in them. Their faith that is proclaimed in all of the world, their faith that that says that they are saints in the first place is only by God's good pleasure. And so he says, not I thank you that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He says, I thank God. And how does he thank God? He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And the reality that we understand is the reason that we, we say in Christ's name we pray is because the only way that we can indeed thank God is through the work and person of Christ. We realize that there is, there's not really just this reality in, in Romans chapter one where Paul is trying to be flowery in his verbiage. He's not just saying this because it sounds cool. He says it because it's true. That the Roman believers need to understand and need to be reminded that there is no thanking God apart from the finished work of Christ. Paul could not approach the Father apart from being declared a saint in Christ. Paul could not even offer up this prayer apart from the work of Christ. His saintship, just like he mentioned in the first six verses, his saintship is based in the positional holiness that he has because of the work of Christ. Not only that, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ because the church at Rome would not exist apart from the accomplished perfect righteousness, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If Christ had not gone to the cross and risen from the dead, the church at Rome would not be a thing. And, and even more, Apart from the resurrection of Christ, there would have been no gospel delivered to the Gentiles. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because all of this is a work that none of you did. And the glorious part of this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. What we understand from the context of Romans is that Paul had never met these people. Paul didn't plant the church at Rome. The church at Rome was most likely founded by some who were converted on the day of Pentecost and and, and went back to Rome. Um, Paul is writing this letter and he's speaking of the gospel that has taken root in the Roman church and he's never met them. And the question is like, what could cause this kind of connection that he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. What could cause that kind of connection if they had never met? It's because they had Christ in common. They had Christ in common, and there's no qualification in Paul's language. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. They had Christ in common. And even though he did not know them personally, he could thank God for them because of who they were in Christ. They were brothers and sisters. They were fellow saints. They were fellow partakers of the gospel. They were fellow heirs with Christ. They are those who had been bought, who had been adopted, who had been justified. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And why does he thank God for them? Because your faith. 
Paul was thankful to God for the faith of the Roman church. And I want to be careful here because there are some who would say, well, he's meaning this special higher gift of faith that the people in the Roman church had. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I'm thankful to God because you have been given the gift of faith, just like every single one of us has been given the gift of faith if we're in Christ. This is the glorious reality. The faith of these Roman believers was reason to rejoice because their faith equates the glory of God because their faith was a gift to them from God. It is a miracle. It is a miracle that any one person was part of the Roman church because everyone is dead in their sins apart from Christ. It's a miracle that any person dead in trespasses and sins has ever given the gift of faith. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith. Paul wrote similar things to the church at Philippi and in several other churches. In Philippians 1.3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a, work, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am thankful to God for you because of what God has worked in you. This faith that is not only a faith, but is a faith that is, at the end of verse 8, proclaimed in all the world. Here's the question. Why was the faith of the Roman church proclaimed through all the world? I can guarantee you it wasn't because the church at Rome had a stellar social media marketing intern. I can guarantee. I can guarantee that it wasn't because there was Facebook or Twitter or a cool church website or podcasts or live streams. Their faith was not proclaimed in all of the world because of any of these things. Their faith was proclaimed because the Spirit of God had done a miraculous work. And when the Spirit of God does a miraculous work of bringing dead men to life among the evil present in Rome, the word gets out. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the reality of what we thank God for because this is not something that could be manufactured. This wasn't something that could be spun. It's not something that needs to be marketed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says a revival never needs to be advertised. It always advertises itself. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Yesterday we celebrated the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther and the reformers really fought for these truths to be accepted that faith is a gift from God that we don't bring anything to the table, that the reason that Paul could say, I thank God for you, is because it's not that we bring the 1% and God brings the 99%, but it's that God brings everything. The only thing that we contribute is our sin, and the, which is the, necess the necessity of that salvation. And when I look around this room, I thank God for the fellowship that we have that isn't built on anything apart from the blood of Christ. That our community that we have been given 
is because of the will of God. And I look around this room, I see my family. Not because of where I was born or when I was born, but because of the will of God. But I do want to point out in verse 8 that this is a gift of the gospel that Paul can thank God for the testimony of people he has never met. This is amazing to me that Paul is thanking God for the testimony of these people that he has never met. And it's a reminder to us that as we see other churches in our area serving the Lord and the gospel faithfully, we are not in competition with them. We are grateful for God's faithfulness in them. That as we think about believers across the world who are living faithfully in the midst of all kinds of persecutions and difficulties, we thank God for them. It is a reason for us to glory in who God is. But I think verse 8 also reminds us of, of one more thing. And it's that we trust the power of the gospel that made it possible for the Roman church's faith to be proclaimed throughout the world, we trust in that gospel as well. That there is no marketing campaign, there's no scheme, there's no stage decoration, no smoke machine, no coffee bar, no amount of money that can measure up to this power. That we, we have not gathered around anything else. We, we acknowledge together that what we have gathered together for is because we have been transformed by the gospel and we are being transformed by the gospel. And we trust in that power. The gospel spread throughout the known world through men that Acts calls uneducated common men. And we know the secret. And it's not human might, it's not human wit, First Corinthians says that he has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Their faith was proclaimed because the gospel is strong because it's the gospel of God, the gospel that had taken root in them and the gospel that was growing them in grace. And that's far more powerful force than anything we can muster. So Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. But not only do we see Paul's thanksgiving, I think we also see the refrains of his prayers, and this is the second point, that Paul's refrains reveal his love for human souls. If you look at verse nine, he says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you. Without ceasing, I mention you. Paul speaks of these things throughout this text. He says that uh, he is, he thanks God for all of you without ceasing in verse nine. I mention you in verse 10. He says his prayers that he would succeed in coming to you. In verse 11, he says that he wishes to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul's refrains in his prayer, the over and over refrain that he gives us in this prayer is that he loves people, that he has a love for human souls. But look how he begins verse nine. He says, for God is my witness. And Paul often uses this phrase in, in uh, the text of scripture. And it's almost as if he's calling on the omnipresence and the omniscience of God to say, listen, this is true. I am who I am because of the power of God. I'm saying what I'm saying and it is true. And if you don't agree, God is the one who is my witness. He says, 
For God is my witness, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. The Greek word here for serve is always used in the New Testament to speak of religious or spiritual acts. So if you, if you look over across the page at Romans 125, Paul says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served, same word, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. This, re- this verse reminds us, if, if we're looking at verse nine, whom I serve with my spirit, this verse reminds us that every single person is in religious service to something. That either they're in religious service to the God of the universe or to something that is created. And Paul here describes his service to God. And he says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And while Paul has given us all of this doctrine in verses one to seven, we're reminded here in verse nine that Paul's service to God is service in the gospel of Christ. This is the way that you sum up Paul's life. And this is the way that you sum up our lives. That at one time we were not in Christ and then we were in Christ. And as we were in Christ, our service is in the gospel of his son. Paul's life could be summed up in the service of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel to the lost world, especially to the Gentiles, which we'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks. And it's almost like that seems to just like leak out of him. He can't contain that. I mean, here he is three sentences into his letter to a group of believers he's never met and his love for Christ and his compassion for them and his desire to see them strengthened in the gospel is on full display. The question is, why is Paul so thankful for these Roman believers? Like, why is he desirous that they grow in grace? Why is he desirous that they be strengthened? And the reality is that he's so desirous that they be strengthened because he had experienced it. Matthew 13, 44 says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That is the reality of the Christian life. And the reality in Paul's mind is God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his, of his son. I want every one of you to experience that. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, true love for souls is the white heat of a passion that has been ignited at the cross of Calvary. It sees the world's lost and hopeless apart from Christ and realizes that the Lord came from heaven to do something about it. Because we have been redeemed by him, we desire that his purposes be satisfied and that for his sake, the lost shall be brought to him. Paul longed for the souls of these saints because he had experienced the love of God in Christ. But he goes on in verse nine to say, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you. There are very limited reasons to do something without ceasing. We breathe without ceasing because if not, our life would not be sustained. Maybe you think about something without ceasing. Maybe you worry about something without ceasing. There are very limited reasons to do something without ceasing. How could Paul pray for these believers without ceasing? I think there are really two reasons that he does. And the first is that he believed it would work. He prays for them because he believes it would work. 
that there is one God who hears prayers. There is one God who is sovereign over the events of the universe. But I think second, he prayed without ceasing because he desired that the Roman church grow and be encouraged. He loved them though he had never met them. And his desire was to see them grow in Christ. And what do we see here from the refrains of Paul's prayers that he is praying for all of you in the church at Rome that without ceasing he mentions you, that he desires to succeed in coming to you, that he would impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen to you. What do, what do we see in these refrains? I think we see in these verses the pastoral heart of Paul toward the church at Rome. That Paul desired that those believers be built up in the gospel. And I would just say to you this morning as a reminder to you that each of your elders here at Mercy Hill desire the same thing for you and for us. We desire that we would be built up in the gospel of Christ. And that care, that desire actually begins with what we preach. We, like Paul, acknowledge that there is one message for us. That, that the gospel is not one message among many, but it is the message. It's the message that we have for you. That there is literally nothing else for us to preach. Like Paul, I can't come to you with any other wisdom. I can't come to you with any other schemes. There's nothing else worth our preaching. And our commitment to preach the gospel of God is evidence that we care for your souls. Paul's commitment to preach the gospel of God was evidence that he cared for these believers in Rome. But similarly, our commitment, each of us, to preach and teach the gospel of God to our neighbors and to our children, to the people that we know and live around, it is evidence that the gospel has taken root in all of our lives. And when I read this verse from Paul, verse 9, I'm challenged to think about my own prayers and the common refrains in my own prayers, that it's so easy to focus on the temporal in my prayers to pray for the things that are, seem to be pressing this week or today or tomorrow. But I'm challenged in this verse to pray for the eternal, to pray for sinners to be saved, to pray for the church to be encouraged, to pray for the believers to be equipped to live the gospel out in front of their neighbors, to pray for knowledge of God, to pray for steadfast love, to pray for faithfulness. We see an example in Paul that he cared about the souls of those that he wrote to. And that is my desire, that my prayers would be filled with the things of eternity, that I would pray for the lost to be saved, for the saints to be equipped, for myself and my brothers and my sisters to be conformed to the image of Christ. Which I think is directly correlated to verse 10. And so we've seen in Paul's thanksgivings, we see his refrains, and now I want to look at verse 10 to see that Paul's requests, what Paul is asking for, Paul's requests reveal his rest in the sovereignty of God. If you look at verse 10. So he says, without ceasing, I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says, by God's will. Paul's submission to the will of God is a fruit of the Spirit in his life. 
that Paul could even submit to the will of God when his desire for the Roman church was so strong is evidence of the Spirit's work in his life. Paul's submission to the will of God recognizes that even his good desires, even the desires that he feels to be godly and good are submitted to God's will and to his timing. And then God is glorified in his own patience. Submission to the will of God is trust that his plan is best no matter what the circumstance. Lloyd-Jones again says this Christian life is full of romance and full of glorious surprises, prohibitions, restraints, hindrances. Then suddenly and in a most unexpected manner, the things we have wished for and prayed for submissively is granted to us in God's time and in God's way. There's only one place of safety. There's only one place of peace. There's only one place of perpetual joy and we find it when we are entirely submitted in all things to the will of God. There's only one place. And Paul acknowledges that. Even the the greatest desire that he has, this full desire to see and to encourage the church at Rome, he says, is still in submission to God's will. But not only that, I think it's important that we note that Paul still goes on praying. He still goes on trusting that our persistence in prayer does not stop because we have been thwarted. Our persistence in prayer doesn't stop because the answer hasn't been given to us yet. We trust in the sovereignty of God. And to be honest, Paul's life reveals a necessity in this. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul runs through several of the things that he has gone through because of uh, his belief in Christ and his, his call to be an apostle. He says he's had more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. Frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul deals with all of this, how? Because he was just like a really strong guy. He just had a lot of willpower. He intimately believed in the sovereignty of God and in the goodness of God. And our own lives reveal a necessity for believing in the sovereignty of God and in the goodness of God. Our theology, our belief that God is sovereign reminds us that there is no situation that we face in which God is out of control that there is no change in plans that he did not ordain beforehand, that there is no suffering, no pain, no disappointment that took him by surprise. And as Paul is speaking to the church at Rome and saying, I desire that by God's will I could come to you, he is doing that in full submission, realizing that God is sovereign over all. But I think the word succeed here is really interesting because he says that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And the word succeed in the Greek is passive. It's a a work of being acted upon, not an active word. Paul understood 
that there was someone else who acted to give him success. That it is Paul's trust that God is the one who will finally give him success in coming to Rome if, if that's his will. That's not an accidental word choice. I think Paul here is admitting that the wisdom of God is greater than his wisdom. And this isn't a specific doctrine that he's trying to delineate. If you look at, back at verses 1 to 7, we, we would rem- remember that it's God's gospel. And it'll go to whom it goes as he wills. It's Christ's work, and it'll move how and when he wills. It's God's glory. And the gospel will indeed go to the nations as he sees fit. And it's our job to trust in his will and his sovereignty. And I think what's the most interesting about this word is that Paul finally gets his wish. The thing that he has desired for years to go to the church at Rome, he gets to do. Acts 19 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Paul got to go to Rome. And when he went, he went as a prisoner. The end of the book of Acts records for us that his prayers were finally answered, and yet our trust in the sovereign plan of God means that even when our prayers aren't answered the way that we thought they should be answered, he's still good and he's still sovereign. Paul went to Rome as a prisoner. And the reality for us is that if our belief in God's sovereignty is a mental ascent, if our belief in God's sovereignty is just something that we say, yeah, we believe that, but it never affects our actions or our lack of actions, it is no belief at all. It is not my joy to just stand up here and pontificate about the glories of God's sovereignty. Rather, my joy is to see it lived out in my own heart. We trust that he does what he wills for his glory and for our good, that we rest in his divine power, that we actually believe that he is sovereign, that he is in control. It changes the way that we see our own sins. It changes the way that we see our own frustrations. It's, it changes the way that we see our, our godly desires, our relationships with other believers. Nothing is left up to chance. And Paul understood this. But I think finally we see, number four, that Paul's longings reveal his belief in the communion of the saints. And I think this is where Paul is ending up in this section. Paul's longings reveal his belief in the communion of the saints. And this is verse 11 and 12. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. What does Paul say in verse 11? For I long to see you. The Greek word here could even mean to strain after. I'm straining to see you. I long to see you believers in Rome. And Paul's desire to see them is based on what they have in common. It's something that Christ births in us. He longed to see people he had never met because what they had in common in Christ was more important than any other fact about them. 
Paul would say in Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the power of the gospel. That those who may have nothing in common have everything in common in Christ. And as you look around this room, you see people who look differently than you, who are aged differently than you, who are, who are from different places, who have political differences, who have ideological differences. And yet what we have in common is Christ. And if we have Christ in common, everything else falls to the wayside. Everything else pales in comparison. And he says, I long to see you. Why does he long to see them? Because he wants to impart some spiritual gift to them. There are many who would say, well, this spiritual gift that Paul is speaking of is something, something that we might consider, quote unquote, supernatural, this supernatural power given only to the apostles, that he was going to come and, and bestow this on the church at Rome. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. And I'll tell you why in just a second. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying here is that the spiritual gift that Paul desires to give to the church is, in fact, in verse 12 we see, he says the word that is. Or in other words, more specifically, what I'm saying to you is that what the spiritual gift that I desire to give to you that would strengthen you is that we would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. What's the spiritual gift? What is the spiritual gift that Paul desires to impart to the believers at Rome? It's the gospel of God. The spiritual gift that Paul desires to impart to the believers at Rome is the gospel of God. You ask the question, well, wait, weren't they already believers? They're the saints at Rome's. Yeah, yes, the church is in the business of preaching and teaching the gospel of God, preaching and teaching Jesus and him crucified. That is all that Paul had to offer to the church at Rome, and it was all that they needed. They needed the gospel of God. And in this sense, conversion is not an end of itself, but simply the beginning. They had faith. We never move on from the gospel. And he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, what the church at Rome needed to be reminded of was the gospel. We can't move on from that. We don't move on to bigger and better doctrines. We simply just move deeper into the gospel. It's not that the gospel saves us and then we move on to the other things. There is no other thing. It is the truth of God. We will study and glory in the depths of the gospel for all eternity. The gospel is sufficient for the life of the church. And Paul says, I want to give you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I'm just going to carry the gospel with me. I think it's important that we illustrate this because we say things like this all of the time. But I want you to know that like, we actually believe this. That if, if you come to someone in this body and say, hey, I'm, I'm having some marital strife. The world would say, hey, here's a book, here's five steps, maybe that'll help. What we say to you is that you need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. That in Christ we have been forgiven of far more than we could ever dream. And so be forgiving. That in the gospel we do not hide our sin, but we repent of it. 
Repent. If you come to us and say, I feel like I have this sinful lack of self-control, we need to be reminded that the power to obey Christ is given to us as grace. If, we're, if you're discouraged, we need to be reminded that if God is for us, who can be against us? And we see that most clearly in him sending his son. If you're lonely, you need to be reminded of the reality that as an adopted child of God, a member of a family with brothers and sisters, you are never alone in the Christian life. We never move on from this. We believe that the gospel empowers every aspect of the church's ministry. He says, I, de I desire to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So how does the gospel then strengthen us? I think we're strengthened really in three ways. And the three ways that we see that we're strengthened, we don't know where one ends and the next begins. They all kind of are working together. I would argue to you that we are strengthened by the truth of God, by the spirit of God, and by the people of God. And we don't know where one ends and where one begins because all of the three work together at once. That when we look at the scriptures, we have precedent for this in 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul says, we sent Timothy, people of God, our brother and servant in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you in your faith and to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. Well, how did Timothy strengthen the body of Christ with the word of God? Ephesians 3.16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The reality is that we're strengthened by one another because the spirit of God is working in us through the word of God and it's working in each other through the word of God and we speak to each other the truth of God because the spirit of God has given it to us because it's in the word of God. We see all three of these things working together. And what does that look like? Well, Romans 1, 5 talking of this gospel says through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. As our faith is strengthened, we continue to believe. As our, as our faith is strengthened and we continue to believe, we continue to follow Christ. We continue to obey. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Our fruit is grounded in the roots of our faith. We were created for good works only because we are his workmanship, that he created it in us. The Spirit reminds us of the truth of the gospel. The people of God remind us of the truth of the gospel. The word of God reminds us of the truth of the gospel. And he says, I long that you would be strengthened. How are we strengthened? By the gospel at work in us and in those around us. And then he gets really pointed in verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The that is there is very instructive for us of what Paul is trying to point out. What does it mean when he says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to us? It's that we would be mutually encouraged is what he's saying to the Roman church. Paul isn't desiring to come to Rome because he is some higher class who has some deeper doctrine than they have and he's just going to impart this nugget of wisdom on them and just watch it work and walk away. Paul desires to go to Rome 
because he desires mutual encouragement. He desires a mutual relationship of encouragement. Paul, as a fellow minister of Christ's gospel, is seeking to encourage and to be encouraged. And this is the supernatural work of faith. This is it. The supernatural work of faith that we see in the scriptures is that dead men live. And there was nothing that we brought to the table. Is that we have been brought together in Christ. We can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. Because when we ask the question, how do you have faith? How do I have faith? We can't say, well, it's because I did this. It's because of God's work in us. Paul says that he and the church at Rome will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And this is a sweet promise from God. As we watch our brothers and sisters live the Christian life, we'll be encouraged. As we watch our brothers and sisters trust God in the midst of suffering, we'll be encouraged. As we watch our brothers and sisters follow Christ, we'll be encouraged by their faith. And this statement that Paul has for the church at Rome, for I long to see you, is a statement that we say to one another. We experienced this in the negative sense over the past year when we, we were not able to meet together. One of my greatest joys is to stand here on Sunday morning as people are walking in and see people embracing and see people laughing together and talking about the glories of Christ together and enjoying fellowship with one another because our fellowship is in Christ. And when we are apart from each other, we do miss each other because of what we have in common. And we realize that we are mutually encouraged, we are strengthened when we speak the truth of God to one another. As I said, Paul did finally make it to Rome near the end of his life. He was, he was able to go um, to the place that he longed to see for many years. And it's a good thing that he didn't desire to go to Rome to see the architecture or to see the rulers because he went as a prisoner at the end of his life. Acts 28, it's probably just on the opposite page of where we're at in Romans 1. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul got to go to Rome, and you know what he did? He preached the gospel to him. He spoke of the gospel. He believed that the gospel was sufficient for these things, as do we. We've been delivered from death, justified, adopted, declared holy by the blood of Christ. What else could we say to encourage one another?